All right, if you have a copy of the scriptures, please turn with me this morning to Matthew chapter 9. We're going to look this morning at verses 1 to 13. Uh, This is God's word for his people today. This is a portion of a letter from home. Listen to this. And getting into a boat, Jesus crossed over and came to his own city. That's Capernaum. And behold, some people brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. And behold, some of the scribes said to themselves, This man is blaspheming. But Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, Why do you think evil in your hearts? For which is easier, to say your sins are forgiven, or to say rise and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins... He then said to the paralytic, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose and went home. And when the crowd saw it, they were afraid, and they glorified God who had given such authority to men. As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as Jesus reclined at table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when he heard it, he said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Friends, this is God's word for us this morning, and it's good news. I heard a story once of a giant guy who was a Lutheran pastor named Jim's Nest- Jim Nestingen. Uh, and Jim was about six foot six. He was from Minnesota. He was of hardy Minnesota Midwest stock. And Jim was flying on an airplane. And as you would do when you fly on an airplane, you kind of nervously watch to see who's going to sit with you. And sure enough, Jim was lucky enough to find that someone about his size was supposed to sit next to him in coach. So Jim stands up and lets the guy get on the plane. They kind of wedge in next to one another and begin making awkward small talk, as you do on the plane. The man asked him, "Uh, what do you do? And Jim responded just boldly because he is six foot six and big. I am a preacher of the gospel. And the man responded almost allergically to that. He just said, I'm not a believer. And Jim said, that's okay. That's okay. We can still talk. We got to get through this cross-country flight together. And so as they flew together, the man began telling Jim all about his life. And he had served as a soldier in Vietnam. And he had spent much of his adult life sort of haunted by the things he had seen and even some of the things he had done while he was a soldier in Vietnam. He poured out his life and his heart to Jim. 
And as the plane began descending in to land, the man had finished telling Jim all of his life story, and Jim turned to him and said, well, have you confessed all the sins that are troubling you? And the man said, what are you talking about? I haven't confessed anything. And Jim responds, you've been confessing to me this entire flight, and I've been commanded by Christ Jesus that when I hear a confession like this, I have to hand over the goods and speak a particular word to you. So, are there any other sins that are burdening you? If so, throw them in now. And the man balks. He's he's like, no, 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 not at all. I'm not a believer. There's no faith in me. And so Jim, as the plane is coming in for a landing, unbuckles his seatbelt and stands up as a pastor ought to and said, that's quite all right, brother. Jesus says that what's inside of you is what's wrong with the world, and I'm going to speak faith into you. And he proceeded to pronounce the assurance of pardon. In the name of Jesus Christ and by his authority, I declare the entire forgiveness of all your sins. And the man at this is entirely flabbergasted. He goes, you can't do that. And he said, I can, and I just did, and I'm going to do it again. And he says it again, in the name of Jesus Christ and by his authority, I declare the entire forgiveness of all your sins. And you can imagine the flight attendants are telling him to sit down. This is a giant man proclaiming the gospel, standing up in the middle of a landing. The man began weeping. He began crying. And he cried and he cried. And as they begin, they land and they start taxiing to the tarmac, he begins to laugh. And they get off the plane, and Jim hands him his card. And he says, listen, you're not going to believe your forgiveness tomorrow or the next day or a week from now. And when that happens, I want you to call me, and I will speak the words of your forgiveness to you again. And the man did. Every day until the day he died, he called Jim just to hear the words in the name of Jesus Christ. And by his authority, I declare the entire forgiveness of all your sins. Man, I love that. I wish I was that kind of pastor. It's a story of unexpected forgiveness. Our passage this morning in Matthew's gospel, in Matthew chapter 9, is a story, there's two stories really, of unexpected forgiveness. And I don't know if it's the forgiveness that is unexpected or the story that is unexpected, but either way, some unexpected things happen and they concern forgiveness. And the first story picks up in verse 1 of chapter 9. Jesus has crossed back over the Sea of Galilee. Remember, two weeks ago, Jesus was there and he had just cast out uh, some demons uh, from two men in the country of the Gadarenes. They're coming back across the Sea of Galilee. They are landing at Capernaum. And behold, some people bring to Jesus a paralyzed man. And Jesus, it says, sees their faith and then turns to the paralytic and says, Courage, son. Your sins are forgiven. And even just in this, it's helpful to realize Jesus often evaluates our needs differently than we might prefer. Oftentimes we come to Jesus with specific requests, perhaps that Jesus would bring healing or comfort or would bring ease to situations that are bothering or afflicting us. And sometimes Jesus just reminds us, hey, Your sins 
are forgiven. It's also striking to me in these verses that Jesus sees the faith of the friends and then forgives the man. Uh, That's always struck me. And seeing their faith, Jesus says to him, courage, son, your sins are forgiven. And even just like we saw in the story of Jim, the pastor on the plane, sometimes it's helpful for us to remember that faith and faithfulness is a group activity. We need one another in the body of Christ to remain faithful and even to believe in the gospel. Sometimes we need one another to speak faith into us. Well, the story doesn't end there because in verses 3 to 6, what we see is a group of scribes are there. Scribes, remember we've talked about before, were the Bible teachers in ancient Israel. These were sort of religious elites. And they see Jesus proclaim the forgiveness of sins and they think to themselves, this is blasphemy. It's blasphemy because only God can forgive. And Jesus says, hey, your assessment is right, but your conclusion is wrong. You're right that only God can forgive sins, but you're assuming this is blasphemy because you're not realizing that I actually am God. So Jesus says to them, why do you think evil in your hearts? And friends, in some ways, that's grace to the scribes. Uh, Sometimes we think that Jesus is being mean to the scribes, but it is grace that Jesus is telling them that their hearts are on a trajectory away from God. Jesus says to them, which one is easier to say? Is it easier to say that your sins are forgiven uh, or rise and walk? And implicit in that is this idea that, of course, it's easier to say your sins are forgiven because there's no external physical evidence of that. But Jesus continues He says, so that you understand that I have the authority to forgive. He turns to the paralyzed man, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And the man does it. Verse 7 says he rose and went home. He was not only healed of his paralysis, which was his apparent need, he was healed and forgiven for his sins, which was the true and deep need of his life. And it says he went home. And friends, in some ways, all forgiveness is going home. Because all forgiveness is a taste of what the Bible elsewhere calls shalom. What the world is supposed to be. This man has been restored not only to physical health, but to right relationship with his creator. Andrew Peterson, a singer-songwriter, captures this whole thing well uh, in the lyrics to one of his songs. He says it this way. He says, And when the world is new again, and the children of the king are ancient in their youth again, maybe it's a better thing to be more than merely innocent, but to be broken than redeemed by love. This man is a picture of having been broken And then redeemed and healed and forgiven by the love of God in Christ. Verse 8 tells us that the crowds that have seen this marvel and are afraid. But they glorify God that he gave such authority to men. That's the first story. Unexpected forgiveness. A man who clearly needs healing gets more than he 
bargained for. And that takes us to the second story. In verse 9, it says, Jesus passed on from there, and he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax booth, and he said to Matthew, follow me. And so Matthew rose and followed him. What Jesus has just done is mind-blowing to people in the ancient world. Jesus has just recruited a tax collector to be a disciple. And not just a disciple, we are reading a book called Matthew. This is the guy who wrote the book of Matthew. Jesus recruited a tax collector to be a disciple and a gospel writer. Tax collectors were despised in ancient Israel. Because tax collectors were instruments, they were tools of the oppressive Roman imperial government. And the way tax collection worked in the ancient world is you would have a particular amount of money you were supposed to collect and send to the Roman government. And the way you got your salary is whatever you collected on top of that flat fee. So tax collectors made their entire living by defrauding their fellow countrymen. They were collaborators with the oppressors. Think of Zacchaeus and how despised and lonely he was in Luke 19. Tax collectors were hated. They were morally untouchable. They were thieves and collaborators and all of the bad things. It's hard to even think about who might be analogous to a tax collector in our society. I was reading an essay by a guy named Alan Jacobs, uh, who's a thoughtful guy, and, and he was saying that Uh, We all have what he calls the repugnant cultural other. The repugnant cultural other. That is the person or the kind of person that we think is the very essence of wickedness and immorality. And part of the problem in our culture is that we tend to see everyone either as good or evil. Uh, We are polarized partially because of the repugnant cultural other. But think about it for yourself for a moment. Who would that be in your own heart? Who would that be in your own life? Who is the person you would think of as the very embodiment of evil and immorality in our culture? Because that's the weight of what is happening here. Jesus is calling the least righteous person in the culture to be a disciple, and he becomes one. John Calvin, writing on this passage, says, in the tax collector's person, Jesus teaches that the calling of us all depends not on the merits of our own righteousness, but on his sheer generosity. That's what Matthew represents here in this passage. So Matthew leaves the tax booth. He doesn't submit two weeks' notice. He just walks away from it. And he begins to follow and work alongside Jesus in the work of the kingdom. And the story immediately kind of changes scenes, and we're at a dinner party suddenly. In verses 10 and 11, Jesus is probably eating at Matthew's house. Um, That's probably the, the setting here. And it says that he is reclining at table with them and with tax collectors and sinners. Uh, Reclining means, it gives sort of the implication that this is a long meal. 
This was a meal that people ate slowly. There would have been a lot of conversation. There would have been a lot of fellowship. And a lot of tax collectors and sinners are there as well. They are coming to this meal. They are eating and they are reclining with Jesus. And the Pharisees, another group of morally serious, spiritually serious uh, elites in the culture, the pinnacle of righteousness in ancient Israel, they see this and they're concerned. You see, usually the righteous and the sinners had nothing to do with each other. The righteous wouldn't even really talk to or spend any time with sinners because they wanted to keep themselves pure and keep themselves holy. And so they go to the disciples and they say to the disciples, why does your teacher, why does your rabbi eat with tax collectors and sinners? But Jesus overhears. Jesus overhears, oh, I'm sorry, I'm jumping ahead. I got going. Let me stop for a second. The Pharisees believed that separation from sinners was the best thing for the righteous, but also the best thing for the sinners. You see, eating with sinners indicated approval or acceptance. Like you might be encouraging people to remain in their sin if you as a righteous person ate with or spent time with the wicked. And so what the Pharisees are concerned about here is that Jesus is encouraging sinners instead of using shame and shunning to motivate them to be better. We have to note here, disapproving separation from sinners is not the way of Jesus. Disapproving separation from sinners is not the way of Jesus. Pastor Jim on the airplane did not recoil in horror as the man recounted war crimes to him. It was not separation from sinners that the man needed. No one has ever come to Christ because they were shamed or shunned by Christians. It's just true. Now, friends, as Christians, we're we're called as we engage with sinners not to participate in sin, obviously, but Jesus bids us to have compassion on sinners. And here's the thing. If and when we do this as God's people, it is messy and it is awkward because sinners act like sinners. Believe it or not. Sinners act like sinners, and so we don't be shocked when sinners act like sinners. Uh, There's a a great story from a previous church uh, where I was a pastor uh, of a woman who was uh, late in her 60s, uh, and she um, had had a really hard life. Uh, She had grown up in Las Vegas. Uh, She had worked in the casino industry uh, her entire adult life. Uh, You can imagine, she had seen some things and, and been part of some things that were just hard wicked, immoral. And she lived in the apartment complex across the street from the church. And one day she called the church office and she said, "Uh, I don't want to live anymore. Uh, Could anyone come and talk to me? And so the pastor and his uh, church administrator went over and began having a conversation with her and she accepted Jesus. And she became part of the church. And you can imagine, the switch doesn't just get flipped because you've started following Jesus. She didn't suddenly become a person who would follow Jesus for five decades just because she was in her late 60s. And so she started coming to church. And she started wearing just 
interesting outfits to church. And she had a Playboy bunny purse that she brought to church. And people in this church are like, what are we going to do? This is, this, is, this is a little much for us. And so someone in the church got this idea that they should send a, a wise older woman to sit down with her and, and sort of fix her appearance and how she was dressing for church. And they uh, went to lunch and uh, this woman told her all sorts of ways about how she should dress and what kind of makeup she should wear and how she should probably choose a different purse to come to church. And, you know, the woman kind of finishes her whole spiel. And the new Christian woman said to her, well, can I give you some advice? She goes, well, sure. She said, you need to understand, there is nothing wrong with you that a tattoo couldn't fix. It's amazing. It's amazing. It was messy, right? And what we don't understand, like we read the New Testament, we read these letters that Paul is writing to churches, and he's dealing with all this stuff, and we're like, why are you talking about food offered to idols? Like, this makes no sense to us. But understand that in the early church, what was happening is people were coming to faith in Jesus. And so, like three weeks ago, this guy was worshiping this idol, and now you're inviting him to dinner and serving him the food that was offered to that idol? Like, that's, that's difficult for this guy to deal with. So maybe don't put that particular stake in front of him. The, the New Testament is full of examples of people coming out of sin, being forgiven, and it was messy. And so one of the encouragements I have for us as a church this morning is to think, how messy are we willing to be? How awkward are we willing to be with people? Are we willing to be uncomfortable because sinners are coming and wanting to hear the gospel preached? How wide open are the doors of Heritage Presbyterian Church? It's worth reflecting on for us this morning. Jesus overhears the Pharisees' question. And he says to the Pharisees, Hey, Only the sick need a doctor. What you guys need to do is you need to go read your Bibles again, and you need to figure out what God means in Hosea 6.6, which we read earlier in the passage. What does God mean when he says, I desire mercy and not sacrifice? Because what Jesus is getting at, and the Pharisees misunderstood, is that it's the heart, not the outward appearance that matters to God, not this external picture and posture of righteousness that matters to God, but actually the heart. And Jesus says, I have come to call not the righteous, but sinners. Jesus came for the sick. Think about that. Jesus came for the sick. And he's almost saying to the Pharisees here, if you think you're righteous, I'm not your guy. There's a quote that's attributed to Mark Twain, but it's probably actually just evolved through a bunch of different writers. And it goes like this. It says, it ain't what you don't know that gets you into trouble. It's what you know for sure that just ain't so. The Pharisees were assured of their own righteousness, but the problem was it just wasn't so. You see, that's the irony of righteousness in the Christian life. As we grow in righteousness, we become more aware of our sin, not more confident in our own goodness. This is why you will never meet an immature person that thinks they are immature. Mature people can tell you where they are immature. Immature people think they are very mature. The Pharisees missed the gospel. 
They miss Jesus because they assume that they are righteous. Think of the hymn, Come Ye Sinners, which says to us, all the fitness Christ requires is to feel your need of him. Pastor Tim Keller put it this way. He said, all you need is nothing. All you need is need. Bruner, the wonderful commentator on the Gospel of Matthew, says in this passage, Jesus wants his people to know that they themselves are the wrong people whom he has met and is putting right. I said last week in Discover Heritage, the gospel is that we bring less than nothing. God does everything and then rejoices over us. It's beautiful and it's glorious. And so friends, the point of these two stories is simply this. We live in a world that is broken and is scarred by sin. And like the pastor on the plane, like Pastor Jim said, the evil that is out there in the world is the same evil that is in our hearts. And we all long for forgiveness. We all long not to be defined by or imprisoned by sin. We don't want to be defined by the worst thing we've ever done. And yet we live in a culture that is stripped of grace. We live in a culture that is stripped of grace. One theologian put it that way. We live in a culture that is both more moralistic and less forgiving than ever. You see it all over the news. You see it all over social media. People either pretend that they've never sinned or they believe other people who have sinned are eternally tainted. Apologies don't work. Forgiveness is impossible in the culture we inhabit. A scholar named Brene Brown says this. She says, in order for forgiveness to happen, something has to die. In order for forgiveness to happen, something has to die. That is a universal truth. Sin is never just erased. Someone has to absorb the cost of it. Just like when I hit a woman in the back of the head, in the back of the head with a frisbee and knocked her to the ground. She had to absorb the cost of that in order to forgive me. And friends, that's the gospel. That is the very heart of the gospel. For forgiveness to happen, Jesus comes to die and absorb the cost of our sin. So think about these two stories through the lens of Jesus and forgiveness. In the first story, when Jesus says to the paralyzed man, Courage, son, your sins are forgiven. When he says that, he says it knowing the full weight and cost of that declaration. Jesus knows this man's sins are forgiven because he knows that he will pay that cost with his own life. And in the second story, when Jesus reclines at the table with sinners, he says, To the Pharisees, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. And he says that knowing and understanding that his very life will be required for their presence at his table in the new heavens and the new earth. And knowing that, knowing the full weight of forgiveness, Jesus says it anyway. And because of that, I get the privilege of standing before you this morning as a preacher of the gospel, 
getting to speak faith into you. And so I say this, sinners, come to Jesus. The price is paid in full, the table is set, all you need is need. Because in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, you are forgiven. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you that though we have sinned and rebelled against you, you have sent Christ to absorb the cost of our rebellion. You have sent him to heal us so that sin and death don't get the last words in our lives. Father, send that truth deep into us. Push it into our heart and into our bones. Let it be the truth that gets us out of bed in the morning and puts our head on the pillow at night. Father, we pray that you would make us patient and compassionate with sinners. Let Heritage be a church that not only talks about the gospel, but actually lives it out in our lives together. Let us be a picture of your grace and your goodness. And even now, Lord, as we come to your table, we pray that you would be at work in us. We pray that you would take this ordinary bread and this ordinary cup and use them for an extraordinary purpose to anchor us in the reality of what Christ has done on our behalf. We pray all of these things in his name. Amen.